God, that we don't serve a dead God, but a risen Savior. We have power through him, so praise God for that. Well, as we go to prayer this morning, just a couple of updates to share with you. Uh, both of these relate to folks who typically go to our second service, uh, Joey Ryan, uh, Doc, Jim Ryan, and Joey. Her sister, Margaret Patrick, passed away this past week, so be in prayer for uh, Joey and her family, and also uh, Jim Bailey. Many of you know Jim and Belinda. In fact, they help with our uh, media ministry in the second service, but his mom has been placed in hospice uh, late this week, and so they traveled to Pittsburgh to be with her. So be in prayer for uh, Jim and his family at this time. Let's go to God together in prayer. God, you are a God who is faithful, always faithful, even when we are unfaithful. And we know that today your mercy is here for us and will be here for us tomorrow again when we wake up. So we come to you who are the ever-faithful God and know that you will hear us because you've told us that you will and because you've heard and you've answered before. Not always in the way we prefer, not always in the way we anticipate, but you are a God who is completely reliable. And so, God, we come to you and we trust you as we cry out to you today. God, we ask for our congregation that you will make us a church that walks in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called with humility and gentleness, with patience, that we would bear with one another in love, that we would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And we pray for other local congregations here in our city, particularly this morning for City Life Church. God, I pray that through their witness, people would know, live, and tell the story of Jesus. I pray for Pastor Aaron, for his wife Caroline, their family. God, as they plant this church, encourage them. I pray that the gospel would be clear and treasured in their midst. We pray as well today for Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. God, I pray that he will lead in writing laws that reflect your moral will, that he'll lead with wisdom. And we, spread, we pray for the spread of the gospel throughout the world today, particularly among the Swahili-speaking people, the Arabs in East Africa. God, I pray that you would give them knowledge of the true God, that you would reveal yourself to them, and that you'll send laborers to share the gospel with them. And we think of one of our members, Louis Kakulia, this morning. God, he's not able to be present and active here in the way he once was, but we pray that you'll give him health and strength in this season of life, help him finish his race well, encouragement in his walk with Christ. You also give him friends and community uh, in these days to help him along the way. Now, God, as we come to your word, we pray that you will call laborers into your harvest. You'll call young people who can devote weeks, months, or even years to serve you. Professionals who can creatively think through how they can use their vocation to spread the gospel. Some who will give their lives for this. And God, give us joy and confidence that you use ordinary people to accomplish your work in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 will be at the end of Matthew 9 and then about halfway through chapter 10 this morning as we look at Jesus preparing his disciples for mission, preparing for mission. As we walk through this passage this morning, we'll see this central truth that Jesus equips and sends us on mission. Jesus equips and sends us on mission. So if you'll read along with me, I'll begin reading in Matthew 9, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. 
And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals for a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Well, we end with a stern warning, but Jesus really is calling and equipping his disciples for a mission. Now, we sit here today, and when we think of kind of the mission of the church, a passage that we might quickly think of is at the end of the book of Matthew, Matthew 28, where Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples. So there's coming a day when he's going to tell everyone, go everywhere and tell everyone about me. So in other words, kind of the mission of the church today is to take the whole gospel into the whole world and tell everyone about Jesus. Well, today we see a little bit in miniature of, of that mission, but, but we're not quite there yet. So Jesus today starts with his 12 disciples. He doesn't kind of give this to everyone yet. He gives it to 12. And in, in miniature, he gives us a reflection, a model for what it looks like for us today to reach the nations with the gospel. And really what we see is that mission starts with the person next to you. So it starts here, but then it really goes to the end of the world. And so today we're going to walk through the process that Jesus takes his disciples through and then maybe draw some conclusions for what it looks like for us to engage in this mission as well. So the first thing we see here in verse 35 is that Jesus models what he asks his disciples to do. He teaches, preaches, and heals, and then he asks them to do the same thing. So he's about to send his disciples on a mission, but first he gives his disciples a a picture of, of what it looks like to do this. This is not the first time that Matthew has done this, but he summarizes Jesus' mission. Jesus has kind of three main components. He teaches, he preaches, and he heals. We've already seen this in Matthew chapter 4 as well. The language emphasizes here, not that this is something that Jesus has done, but it's something that he keeps on doing, and that it's something that's kind of a continuous aspect of his life. He pours himself out in love for others and teaching, preaching, and healing. And they're really the core of what he calls his disciples to do as well. Well, think about what Jesus' life is like as he travels through. He's in the northern region. As he travels through Galilee, he's surrounded by what? By tons and tons of people. And as he does this, no doubt Jesus deals with the fact that there are many people he can help, but as he looks out, he sees vast crowds. There are many more who maybe he can't help. You see, Jesus is God, which means that he has infinite resources at his disposal, and yet in becoming human, he's also willingly limited himself. So just like you, when you woke up this morning, perhaps you were a little tired. If you weren't this week, you sure were last week, right? You had to get up an hour earlier. Jesus experienced that. He experienced that feeling of weariness in the morning. He experienced the the weariness of working all day, kind of crashing at the end of the day and having nothing left to pour out because he's got more needs than he can meet. 
And so he's surrounded by crowds, and he goes looking for people wherever he goes. So he travels to a town, and he goes there to the synagogue. Synagogues, of course, are houses of worship. They're places where people worship, but they're also really the gathering centers. They're places where people would, would meet and talk, uh, certainly talk about the word, talk about the law, but they'd also just talk about life. They'd meet and they'd kind of they'd spend time together there. So Jesus went looking for people, looking for wherever people are. Jesus experiences human weakness. If you're a, a parent, you know what this is like, as in like your job is never done. No matter how much energy you have, your kids will always have more energy. And if it's not one, if you have, uh, if you have multiples to keep you, it's, it's, it's like compounded pressure, right? Or if you're the kind of person and you, and you deal with people who really need help, you realize there's more than you, can, than you can pour yourself into. There are always more needs that can be met. And that's at some level what Jesus experiences here. Jesus is limited, willingly limited by his humanity. But unlike us, he never kind of wilts in fear. He's never lazy. He always gives himself fully to the task and pours himself out. He always gives perfect maximal energy to his ministry, and yet he looks around, and, and there, there are vast, vast needs here. And it's in the midst of this, he's, as he's modeling what he's doing, he's preaching, teaching, he's healing, he models, and he stops, and he gives us a vision, a vision like what he sees, and his vision is a compassion for the crowds in verses 36 to 38. Matthew gives us uh, insight into Jesus' emotion here. We have the word compassion. He looks on the crowds with uh, compassion. Compassion is not just kind of like a soft-hearted feeling. It's something that you feel very deeply. It's a word that literally means you, you, you feel pain in your gut. Now, I felt this recently. Uh, I didn't feel it as keenly as the person telling me this story felt it, but I felt it recently. We were uh, talking with Shelly Stinson a few weeks ago, and she was describing the moment when her daughter Julie fell off uh, our playground out here and broke her arm. And as she described what was happening, now I got to tell you, you know, as, as a pastor, I spend time in hospital rooms. That ain't my favorite part of the job because I don't do so well with blood or seeing people in pain. And that's a lot of what that is. And so as she's telling me this, I'm literally like wincing and, and, and feeling the pain of that moment. And she's describing it, you know, as someone who deals with medical stuff all the time and seeing her, seeing her, her daughter there and kind of the arm and you can see the bone poking out to the side there. You're like, that's not supposed to be that way. And as she was talking, I was literally like, oh. I, I could feel it. And that's, that, that's the feeling that Jesus feels here. He looks out and he sees a vast crowd of people and he feels their pain. He, he knows what they're going through. He sees that these are people whose, whose lives are out of joint, so to speak, or broken. And he sees broken, hurting people and it moves him deep in his gut to where he feels the emotional pain of seeing all these hurting, broken people and he's overwhelmed, he sees them with compassion. When Jesus looks on the crowd and he sees people who are broken, he doesn't look at them with kind of a sterile eye, he looks at them with, with an eye that feels their pain. He's the good shepherd, and without the good shepherd, these sheep will die. He's a shepherd, and he sees the danger. That's how he describes them. He says, these are lost and scattered sheep. They're harassed, verse 36, and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We don't deal with sheep a lot in our world today, at least I don't think we do, but domestic sheep do not survive without a shepherd. So there's kind of this, you know, wild sheep on the mountains and they can bound away from predators. Not these sheep. These sheep are dumb and they are helpless apart from someone protecting them, a sheep herder or a sheep dog. I was reading this week and a modern day shepherd describes what it's like and he finds sheep that have wandered away from the shepherd. 
He says, I've several times been called in to gather up flocks that have been left unattended. It's a sorry sight. Their unsheared wool is heavy, dirty, full of parasites. They are heavily infected with internal worms, stumping their growth and their survival. Often their uncared for feet are so infected and the hoofs so long that they cannot walk and their knees are inflamed. The weak sheep don't have enough milk for their lambs who die from malnutrition and exposure. So apart from even wolves coming in, sheep cannot survive on their own. And Jesus looks out and he sees malnourished, weak, stumbling sheep in danger. So where is safety? The only place of safety for a sheep is belonging to a herd that has a good shepherd. And so Jesus looks at these sheep and he knows they're in danger. And brothers and sisters, that's why God gave us the church. Sheep on their own don't make it on their own. They may live, but they'll grow like this. They'll have parasites. They'll get sick. Eventually, they will die. We need the flock, and we need Jesus, the shepherd. But we can't spend too much time there because this passage is ultimately about catching Jesus' vision for these crowds, for people who don't know Jesus. Jesus sees the crowd. He senses their need, and this need moves him deep in his gut. Now, we know we're not Jesus because we don't react to people like that, do we? I mean, we interact with people every day at work, at school, playground, park, library, wherever. We act with, we'll interact with people in a restaurant. Jesus walks into the restaurant after church today and he sees sheep and they will die apart from a shepherd. Jesus sees the same people that we see. We interact with folks all the time and we interact with them as, they are per- as if they are perfectly healthy and in no danger. Jesus looks at the same picture and he sees people who will die apart from the shepherd. You see, every second, two people die. 105 people per minute, 6,316 every hour, and every day, 151,600 people die. The great majority of those people without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This is not a question of if this is happening. This is happening every moment of every day. But the end of this time together, hundreds of people will enter eternity, either with a personal relationship with Jesus or not knowing him. They will die as sheep in the care of the shepherd, or sheep who will perish eternally. You see, when we begin to realize the danger, when we realize the risk, we begin to see that down deep we too should wince with deep compassion, pain at sheep who are wandering, who need the Lord. There's a great need. Jesus sticks with language that's Like a farmer's language in verse 37, he says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There are vast numbers of people who need Jesus. It's like you're walking out. Have you ever had this where you've walked out and you've seen this giant field or a giant garden that needs to be picked? Now, it probably wasn't really that big, but my my dad's garden, it was like this. And I can remember, I was a kid, and I will say it's probably about the biggest garden I've ever seen. And one of our responsibilities as kids was to, to pick that garden. My dad pretty much cultivated it and took care of it, but our job was to pick what was in there. And the particularly daunting rows were the green beans. If you've ever had a garden with green beans, it, it's, it's, not a quick, it's not a quick prospect. And we'd have to wake up early because, uh, you know, it gets hot in the middle of the day. We'd wake up, we'd go out there. It felt early in the summer to me, you know, at eight years old. And, you know, you're, you're out there at seven in the morning and you're picking green beans. And I can remember, like, you're looking at it and the row just looks forever. But then you got multiple rows. And there's nothing better in that moment. You're standing there by yourself, 
And then my, uh, you know, my little brother and my little sister come out, and then we're picking together. There's nothing more encouraging in that moment when I'm looking at a job that feels impossible, and there's someone there to help. So there is this giant work to be done. There's this giant field, there's this giant harvest, and you're standing there by yourself. There are few labors. I can remember another time where I was a kid, and we were, uh, we were prepping. I mean, I, I, I say kid. I was probably a teenager by this point. We were prepping a, a ball field. So we were taking a part of a subdivision that they were going to turn into like a baseball field, and we had to clear every stone off of that field. I mean, you don't know how many five-gallon buckets of stones you can get out of one field, but you can get a lot. And it's like you're standing there, and you realize this is an absolutely overwhelming task. The point is this. There is this giant task. There's this giant job. There's this giant field. There's this giant harvest, and there are few people to help. So how is it that we should respond? And Jesus says we should pray for laborers. Well, naturally, I'm like this. There's this vast need. People are in danger. And so I expect the next words out of Jesus' mouth to be what? Go and help. That's not what he says, though. He says, pray. He will tell us to go. But first, he says, pray, verse 38. Pray earnestly. This is praying with great urgency. It's the idea of begging. Please, please would you send laborers. Because we sense the danger, because we see this great need, we beg God, God, there's this giant field, there's this giant flock, and they are going to die. Send people to help them. Because desperate times call for what? Desperate measures. And desperate danger calls for desperate prayer. Well, if you're like me, there's a part of you that feels like, what do I do? We're all limited in some sense by time and space and energy. And there's a part of us that can feel overwhelmed by this because we're finite beings in a finite space and and we deal with finite limitations. I mean, even the most influential can impact only a limited number of people. I mean, I feel this all the time. It's like, do I do that or do I do that? Do I help this person or do I help that person? Do I help these people or those people? So what do we do when we feel almost you you can become paralyzed by not even knowing what to do. And Jesus says the first thing we do is we pray to an infinite God with infinite resources who can infinitely answer and meet infinite needs and ask him to meet the need. And what could be more urgent than masses of people who are in danger of perishing? We live in a day where sometimes if you don't act in the face of evil, you're accused of participating in the evil. And Jesus says sometimes the best thing you can do is pray. Pray for God to meet that need. Pray for God to intervene. Pray for God to act. I love the name that Jesus uses here for God. It's not a, it's not a, a language that we see often. He calls him what? The Lord of the harvest. This is God's harvest. God is sovereign. God is reigning over this. The harvest belongs to God, not to us. And so we should pray with urgency, but not with anxiety. Pray because there's a great need, but you can pray and rest in the God who is always faithful. The God who knows the number of every hair on our head. The God who knows the number of the stars. The God who has called us by name has already planned the harvest. He just sends us to go. The harvest is there. The workers gather it in. No one cares more for the harvest than the Lord of the harvest. So when we pray, we know that he delights in answering this prayer. So before we move on, let's ask ourselves this morning... Do we pray? 
do we pray with urgency that God will send laborers into his harvest? And I got to admit, as I was considering this personally this week, this is confrontational. We pray for a lot of things, but brothers and sisters, do we, if, if you want to know what is God's will, God says, pray, pray for this. Do you pray? Do you ever talk to God and ask him to intervene? Do you engage with your brothers and sisters in Christ here? And let's just be honest for a minute. I mean, listing prayer requests for 15 minutes and then and praying about them for two minutes, that, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He is talking about engaging in earnest, urgent labor in prayer. Do we pray? Well, Jesus never calls us on a mission without also giving us the power to accomplish what he calls us to do. And so we see him giving them authority for the mission in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 10. We've already seen uh, Jesus go out to the fishing boats, call Peter, Andrew, James, and John. We've already seen him call Matthew from his tax booth, and now we're introduced to the other seven disciples. The central idea, though, is in verse 1, not the names of the disciples, the fact that he gave them authority. We see this same idea in the Great Commission. Jesus claims he has all authority in heaven and on earth, and then he sends us out into the harvest, into the mission. It's impossible to operate apart from the power of the gospel, but in the power of the gospel, we can accomplish all that God calls us to do. Jesus gives his disciples remarkable power to cast out demons, to heal every disease and every affliction in verse 1. So let's follow kind of the pattern of what Jesus is doing here. He models the mission. He gives the disciples a big vision of a big harvest, and then he gives them the authority, the power, to do what he's called them to do. And after giving them this authority, Jesus sends them out. And this looks very familiar because Jesus sends them to be doing the very same things that he himself has been doing, go, preach, and heal. So the focus of the disciples' mission is narrower than ours. He says, go nowhere, verse 5, among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So their target audience is, is Jews. As you know, by the end of Matthew, that, that audience is going to become a lot bigger. It's going to become universal. The ends of the world, all peoples. And note how Jesus connects his mission with the vision he's given them. He says the crowds are what? Like lost sheep. And now he sends his disciples to what? Lost sheep. So he gives them a vision for what he calls them to do, and then he calls them to do this. Verse 6, the disciples are to go. Verse 7, they proclaim. Verse 8, they heal. In other words, they do the very same things that Jesus himself has been doing. And now he's going to give them the power to do these things, including, verse 8, the remarkable power to even... Raise the dead. Well, as they go, they're supposed to rely on God's provision for their needs rather than the, the people, the villages to support them. Well, let's just pause here for a moment. Like we sit here 2,000 years removed from this and we're like, yeah, of course these 12 disciples are good with this. But what have we seen in the lives of these people that would give, them any conf- give us any confidence that they can actually do this? Nothing. We have not seen them succeed a single time. In fact, the most visible story we have with them is on a boat, and they are complete failures. When Jesus lies there sleeping in a storm, and they freak out, Jesus, what is your problem? And he rebukes them. That's the greatest success we've seen in their lives. Yet Jesus takes these utter failures, and he sends them out on this mission. The disciples didn't suddenly get great. So how is it that Jesus says, you'll be able to heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, cleanse lepers? How can they do this? Well, the effectiveness of their mission is not because they've got sudden skills that they never had before. 
It's because the power of God is going to manifest, manifest itself in their lives in ways they have never seen. You've heard the expression, you got game? These guys got no game, and Jesus sends them out into the harvest field. He's like, there are sheep in danger. I'm going to send a bunch of people who haven't figured out anything, and they're going to succeed. It's crazy. God's going to use them anyway. And not only does God use them, he promises judgment on those who reject their ministry. If anyone will not receive you, shake off the dust of your feet when you leave that house or town. Now, we don't do this so much, but Jews were so concerned about contact with Gentiles that this was a pretty common practice. So not only would they like, wash their hands if they encountered something unclean, but if they traveled into uh, like a, G- a Gentile region and they came back into a Jewish region before they came, they'd have to knock the dust off their feet so they didn't bring any unclean dust from the Gentiles back into Jewish territory. And so what Jesus is, is saying is that the Jews that reject Jesus are not God's people. They, they, they are like Gentiles. They're not God's people. So when the disciples leave that place, they shake off the dust of their feet and get up out of there. Well, the consequences of rejecting Jesus are pretty severe. Verse 15, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Sodom and Gomorrah are kind of two twin cities that we read about in Genesis chapter 19. Those cities are known more for wickedness than for anything else, and God ends up judging those cities by raining fire from heaven and burning them, and all the inhabitants die a very painful death, and yet Jesus says that those who reject him will experience worse judgment. How can this be? The people of Sodom and Gomorrah committed a gross sin of inhospitality against two strangers. God's word tells us they're angels, but they don't know that. They're, they're, they're strangers. Yet Jesus says that to reject his messengers is an even greater offense in the eyes of God. To reject Jesus' message is to reject God's judgment and therefore to receive God's judgment against sin. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus teaching and he says those who don't know God by faith in Christ will receive the judgment of eternal fire he says depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels and these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life they're sobering words one reason that the judgment is worse is because to reject Jesus's messengers is to reject the king himself to reject the Son of God himself. Would you receive these words of Jesus? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's a wonderful promise of life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Of God. God takes the rejection of his son very seriously. Would you turn from your sin and trust Jesus? Well, in just a few moments we have left, I'd like to draw a few conclusions from uh, this passage. And the verse is this, that we're all laborers. I mean, Jesus, this is kind of funny that he does this. He tells his disciples, pray really hard that God will send out some workers into the harvest. And then what's the very next thing we see Jesus doing? Taking all of those same people, he's like, your prayers have been answered. It's you. And he, he, he sends those disciples out and he says, pray that God will send laborers. Where can we find them? You, you're, 
You're the laborers. You're the ones. And he sends them out. I mean, there are just two categories, really, in Scripture. There's the harvest, and there's those that are working to bring it in. So either you're a part of the harvest or you're a laborer helping to bring it in. I mean, the work of calling people to follow Jesus isn't for a few professionals. It's not something that, that, that paid people do. It's the ordinary, everyday work of what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be a laborer in the harvest. God may be calling you. I mean, God calls us all to engage in this work. But God calls some to give their lives to this in a full-time way. So let's pray that God calls men and women to engage in the work of spreading the gospel, of going to the farthest corners of the harvest field, spreading the good news of Jesus. Is God calling you to engage in this work? How many of our students could give a summer, a semester, a few years to a short or midterm mission? How many professionals could be using their vocation, their way of life, and thinking through how they can take the gospel to places that people like me cannot? They can take it across barriers that professional ministers of the gospel cannot that are difficult to reach for, for traditional missionaries? How many retirees could devote years of their lives to reaching the nations for Christ, people who are lost and perishing and are part of this judgment apart from the good news of Jesus? It's possible that God is leading some people here to give their entire lives to reach the nations for Jesus. Thirdly, God uses ordinary faithfulness in ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. As we've looked here this morning, I mean, Jesus' focus has been on the harvest fields, and that's where much of our focus has been, too. But as we close, think back to the list of disciples. I bet if we gave a quiz here this morning and, you know, we, we made you write down all 12, unless you got a song that helps you remember it, you can't remember all 12. Now, you can get Peter, Andrew, James, John, Matthew, and, you know, but Bartholomew and Thaddeus, they probably get lost in there somewhere. I mean, they're not like the guys that come quickly to the tip of your tongue. We all know a few, but most of them are relatively unknown. And that's not just because their names, but God doesn't tell us a lot about what they do. Now, church history tells us some, but I think there's some encouragement for us here. Most of the labor done for the Lord is rather anonymous and gets lost in the shuffle, and most people don't know about it. You don't end up on a podcast. You don't end up on a radio or TV show. You don't end up in a headline. Most of what is done for the Lord is just ordinary people doing ordinary things. It's tired moms teaching their kids a psalm before bed so that one day, like John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, they're an adult. And everything of their childhood is a distant memory, but the songs of their mother come back to their mind. And John Newton, who's a slave trader, profane man who hates the Lord, is converted by the memory of the thing his mom taught him when he was young. Or it's a man like John Payton who went halfway around the world, and in his case, it was his very ordinary dad and it was a memory of his dad, after dinner each night, getting down on his knees and praying for his children. And in the words of John Payton, he said, my father walked with God. Why may not I? In every catastrophe, there was some unthinkable thing that would cross my mind. My soul would wander back to those early memories and would hurl back all doubt with this appeal. My father walked with God. Why may not I? My father prayed, why may not I? It's likely that no one will write the story of your life. It's likely that no one will write down the great accomplishments that you complete. Because God has for century, centuries used the ordinary faithfulness of ordinary people doing ordinary things to accomplish extraordinary mission. People who become anonymous in the flow of time. People whose, people whose names you have never heard and will never know until one day you reach heaven and you see them there and you have no idea who they are. Heaven is filled with ordinary anonymous people. 
I mean, these 12 disciples, they're among the most famous Christians, and most of you could not remember their names this morning if we asked you to write them down. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. The spread of the gospel happens as ordinary people carry the gospel. It's an extraordinary message, and they carry it through their ordinary, everyday lives. So, Mom, invest yourself in your children, even if no one knows. Dad, give yourself to the care and leadership of your family, even if no one ever hears about it. And kids, give yourselves to loving and serving Jesus, even though no one ever knows, because at the end of the day, the need is great, the laborers are few, and God uses anonymous, ordinary people to accomplish his great mission. He calls us all to be a part of that. Don't lose heart in the midst. If no one's there patting you on the back, no one's there telling you, you're so amazing. No one's there saying, Man, God's never had anyone serving him like you. It's like, yeah, God's got a team of people a lot better, and yet somehow he uses ordinary people, many people we've never even heard of. So let's take a moment now, respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. God, we ask this morning that you would call workers, call workers into the harvest field. Call some here, God, call our children, call our youth, call our adults. God, I pray that you'll open our eyes to see the needs around us and also to see the the harvest fields to the ends of the earth. God, I pray also that you'll encourage us just in the ordinary things along the way. God, I pray for uh, moms who are worn out, weary, dads, God, I pray for those who are weary because they aren't moms and dads and they wish they could be. God, we pray for our our people who are experiencing the weariness and brokenness of years. God, give us hearts to see that you are the Lord of the harvest and you call us and equip us. God, I thank you that wherever we go, Jesus walks with us. He goes with us. You will never leave us or forsake us. So God, this morning we call on you to send laborers and God, we ask that we would see people trust Jesus and turn from their sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to respond to the word now in worship, sing together what a friend we have in Jesus. As we do this, if there are ways that we could encourage you or pray with you, we'd love to do that. I'll be here right at the front singing along with you. And if maybe the God is calling you to become a part of this church through committed membership, to follow the Lord in baptism, we'd love to talk with you about any of these things. Let's stand. We'll sing together as we respond.